I, I open this up to get my notes, and there's a note to me in my notes. And uh, <clears throat> I forgot an announcement. So, announcement about the missionary prayers. So, what this is about, let me read this. Um, it's a little card where you can fill it out. It says, I would like to be informed when a missionary needs some specific prayer. This is my commitment to pray earnestly when a need is known. So please put in the donation boxes as you fill these out. Where are these, Dave? Okay, so over on the table, you're going to find these little cards. What this is, you guys, is if a um, specific prayer request comes to Dave or to myself that is like a very pressing need, he's wanting to have an email list that may not be the whole church-wide email list specifically to send that prayer request. Um, that you would commit to go to the Lord quickly in prayer on behalf of those folks. So, if you're interested in being in Dave's special, special list, um, snag one of those cards over there, fill it out, put it in the donation box. Okay, turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 18. I'm taking a break from Genesis this morning and going to look at a parable. And let's, uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you so much that I am righteous this morning. That I stand in the perfect, absolute, spotless righteousness. That's Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you have been so kind to show me I have no righteousness to offer you. It's His. And I, I plead with you, Father God, that if there be anyone in this room this morning that walked in these doors, hoping in themselves, Father, you would kindly and lovingly show them There is no hope in ourselves. But there is only one righteousness, and that is the righteousness provided by your Son. So I pray, Holy Father, as we look at probably a familiar passage to most of us, you, by your Spirit, would give us a fresh sight of just what our Lord is communicating here. And that you'd be glorified The saints would be edified, and Father, perhaps the unsaved would be convicted and drawn unto you. That's up to you. Help me just to be faithful with the text. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A picture is worth... Okay, so that's a statement that we all know what it means. We've heard it uh, probably throughout our lives, and we hear a picture's worth a thousand words. The, the general idea of that is, yes, I could sit and talk and talk and talk and talk. And that would be easy for me. Maybe not for you, but that would be easy for me. <clears throat> or you can just pick up a picture and you go, oh, okay, now, now I get it. Now I see what's being communicated there. Um, the same is true for a story. Uh, at times there's movies, some of the old Alfred uh, Hitchcock movies where So little talking, so much bad music and shadows. And as you watch that, you go, man, this is is interesting. But you know what's going on by what's taking place, even if there's not much talking. 
Our Lord taught with so many different devices, I'll say teaching devices, to communicate truth. One of those was a parable. Uh, The word parable, all it means simply is to throw alongside. Uh, What you have is you have a story that that is going parallel to a spiritual truth or a spiritual lesson. And so Jesus is giving this fictitious story And that fictitious story is teaching a spiritual lesson. And at times, speaking to specific people, at times it seems very open-ended to all in his hearing. And throughout the parables, you see many different things taught from the Lord Jesus. Sometimes the parables are not as crystal clear exactly what the Lord was communicating, and there's lots of good materials chasing after the parables. This morning, this is not one of those. In my opinion, this is one of the simplest parables and one of the most, um, I guess, clear parables you have in the Gospels. Because it starts by telling us who his target audience is, and then we have a pronouncement from him at the end. And so, really what I'm going to be doing this morning, you guys, is I'm going to be doing contrasts. I'll be contrasting two different people throughout the entirety of this passage um, as we walk through it. But first, I want to give just a backdrop, and this is a scriptural backdrop. So picture Dan's going to paint. I paint stick figures better than most, but I'm going to put up here this black backdrop, and then we're going to put some colors on that. So let me do that. Look at Romans chapter 10. Listen carefully for the theme in in these passages of Scripture. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Romans 10, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For not knowing about the... Put it in, I always put it in quotes or parenthesis, the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Well, pray tell, what's the righteousness of God? Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Philippians chapter 3. Go to Philippians chapter 3. And I'll pick it up at 7. This is the Apostle Paul giving his his pedigree, if you will, his backing that would be stacked up to show that he was righteous to those around him, to the Jewish people around him. And listen to what he says in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Now catch verse 9 and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God upon faith. 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Titus chapter 3. Last text. Titus chapter 3. And look at verse 3. For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, He, I love these, I love these three words, He saved us not by works which we did in righteousness. Please notice, beloved, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to what? His mercy through the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. Three texts, Romans 10, 1-4, Philippians 3, 6-9, and Titus 3, 3-7. Now, let's go to our text in Luke 18. And please notice in verse 9, the target audience for this parable, Luke tells us who Jesus specifically was speaking to in delivering this. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So, target audience, those that he's speaking to, those that had a an understanding that they were righteous in and of what they have done. And then he goes on further. It wasn't just that they thought that they were righteous by their works, but they also looked on contempt to those that did not have their scale of works. Now, the text does not say, and Jesus spoke to the the scribes and Pharisees, okay? Most commentators go there specifically because within the context, the Lord Jesus has certainly been in conversation with the scribes and Pharisees, and the shoe fits quite well so they can wear it. But you know what would be tricky is if we could say, hey, that passage speaks to the scribes and Pharisees, not Dan. Well, be careful. Don't slip out of the text too quick. Ask the question, who could trust in themselves? For their own righteousness. Scribes and Pharisees, certainly, as far as the immediate, immediate, immediate context, but within that that larger framework, within the, the bigger picture, if you will, I would argue this is every single individual who does not bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to go to application too quickly, but every single man made religion fits the bill as far as those trusting in their own works to satisfy God. And Jesus could have quickly done a very uh, intricate uh, explanation of justification by faith and by faith alone, and the need for a foreign righteousness and the forensic declaration of God of their atoning sacrifice that will soon be through the Lord Jesus. He could have done all that, but instead, it's interesting. What he says is, there are two guys. 
and they were going to go pray. One went and prayed, the other went and prayed, and here's what they said. And I tell you, here's the outcome. That's the, that's the unfolding of what he does here. Very simple, a very, very simple parable, and yet, beloved, I will say, <clears throat> there's a lot of messages that are preached from this pulpit, from myself, and the elders, and everybody else, all the guest speakers or whatever. But the truth of what I'm seeking to speak today, this may be the most important sermon you've ever heard in your life. Not because of what I've prepared, but because of the nature of the text and what is involved in what Jesus is communicating here. You miss what's said here. You missed everything. If you, if you are in this building and, and comfy in this building and and, and you've found lots of different bits and pieces uh, to the Christian life that you like and appeal to you, but you miss this, you have nothing. This is the most important, beloved. This is the most important. What Jesus speaks to in this parable, everything flows out of. So pay careful attention with me as we look at God's word. Verse 10. Two men went up to pray, or went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So he's setting the stage. We have those who are trusting in themselves are who I'm speaking to, my target audience. Two men went up to pray. Now, I want you to think about with me, as you're, if you're writing down notes, this is going to be two men differing in their social status. Two, two men differing in their social status. You could not pick two more opposites socially in the Jewish community at this time. The scribes and the Pharisees. Let me go there first. Now, I realize, and I've said this multiple times from this pulpit over the years, we hear scribes and Pharisees, we immediately think the bad guys, Right? That is not what would have been heard by the original audience. By the original audience, the Pharisee, the scribe, were the spiritual elite. They were the ones that, they were the, the interpreters of Scripture. They were the ones who were so holy. Remember a few words Jesus said. They travel over land and sea to make a convert. And he says they make them twice the child of hell. But nonetheless, they travel over land and sea to make a convert. Remember, think about what folks would think about in this, in this time frame. He says that they are so scrupulous that they tithe from their mint plant. Mint plant. Did you hear what I just said? <laughs> they go out to the mint plant and cut a tenth out of there and then go tithe it. Really? Talk about commitment. Oh my goodness, you guys, the level of commitment on these men. Their knowledge of the Scripture, their lives are wrapped around this. Now, I realize it's an easy case to make. They were self-righteous, they were egotistical, they liked to say prayers out loud so people could hear. I understand, the text says that, I get it. But just look at the scrupulous nature and the pedestal that they were put upon. This is why when Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The reason Jesus was saying that was he wanted the people who heard that to go, then we'll never be saved. That's right, you will never be saved in and of your righteousness. Your righteousness will never exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. What is he doing there? He's putting up the highest, most respected spiritual people in the lives of that community. 
So, for a parable to begin with, a Pharisee went to pray, nobody's got qualms with that. It's the next guy that they'd have a problem with. The next guy that went was a tax collector. A tax collector was one of the most hated individuals in this culture. One commentator said the equivalent in our day would be that of probably a pimp or a drug dealer. Somebody who makes their, makes their, um, uh, their living off of cheating others. Because it was a well-known fact that the tax collectors would go and collect taxes, and as they collected taxes, they would say so much is owed. That was not the amount that was owed. They would keep what was left. Um, we see this with Zacchaeus. Remember when Jesus went to the wee little man's house? All right? And they, and they ate, and, and he said, today salvation has come into this house, and everybody's so upset that how could he do that? Why would he go see that guy? So on and so forth. You hear throughout the Gospels, tax collector used as a, um, I guess, the idea of, here's the worst of the worst. They're worse than tax collectors, okay? Um, in this culture, that's who that individual would be painted as. So socially, among the people, you have the greatest and the not so much greatest. <laughs> Those who are despised. So those who are idolized and those who were despised in these two different men that go to pray. Now look at their postures. Look down at the text. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. Underline that, underscore it, circle it. He's not talking to God. He's praying to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So look at the two postures in which these two men come in prayer. You have one where uh, the, the Pharisee is standing. Now, real quick, some folks will say, oh, man, he's not even kneeling. This shows that there's an arrogance in his posture. No, that would be inaccurate historically. Standing and praying with your head up, looking up to the heavens, was a very common posture. He's not being weird in doing that or egotistical in doing that. I would imagine both men are standing and praying. Very common posture at the time. But do you notice the statement of he stands and prays, and then the other man it says he stands far off? And I, I had to think about this a little bit. So what, what's he communicating by saying far off? Well, I think at the heart of it, there is a timidity. There's a recognition of, I am unholy. I am unworthy. I am unclean before God. Where it's kind of like if, uh, if you go to a party and they say, hey, the cake's being cut. And okay, the cake's being cut. Just, um, and, and you have four people. And two say, well, we'll wait and let everybody get ahead. And the other two go, great. And they go right ahead and grab it and grab the coffee and then have two extra cups of coffee before you ever get there. That idea of, I have no humility in this. I will get what I want. Now, I got to say, there's cake after the service today. So <clears throat> I'm watching. That's all I'm saying, okay? 
<clears throat> the, the point being, the Pharisee has great confidence to come before God. But it's a false confidence. It's not a true confidence. His confidence is in he. He believes, I can go before God because I'm righteous. That's a false confidence. It should not be there. And the other man's lack of confidence is a true lack of confidence (laughs) in the sense that he recognizes his unholiness, his sinfulness, before a holy and perfect God. Really, brothers and sisters, the main difference between the two men is one sees rightly and the other one does not. One sees God rightly and the other one does not. One sees himself rightly and the other one does not. When we see the Lord rightly, that is when God, by his grace, enables us to start to see ourselves rightly. And so, two very different postures. Now, let's look at their prayers. Look at the prayer of the Pharisee. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then he goes on. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So he's thanking God that he is better than others. He's thanking God for his works. He's thanking God for the the fact that he is not like this tax collector. Now there's five eyes in the text. I, 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 I. This is a five-eyed Pharisee. As he as he speaks about this this concept of a a self-centered perspective. Remember, brothers and sisters, at the very beginning it says in his prayer, he said this unto himself, not to God. This is a man who is thoroughly convinced that his works within his religious system has enabled him to approach God with great confidence. Look at the prayer of the tax collector. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest. The the idea behind that beating his chest, this is not a one hit, this is a continual action, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And I prefer this translation, the the instead of an a sinner. It should be the sinner. That definite article is there, that I am the sinner. Makes me think of the Apostle Paul later in his life when he said, I am the chief of sinners, not one of the chiefs. What is he communicating? He's communicating, I have been so struck by my unholiness before a holy God, I am numero uno. I am the greatest sinner. I'm the sinner before him. To the point, the text tells us that he can't even look up to heaven. Again, speaks to the timidity, speaks to there's there's not confidence in him as he's approaching the Lord. His heart is utterly humbled before God. The beating of the chest. You ever been there where you have felt such intense emotion that some sort of physical response is connected to that emotional response. 
as we have been seeing with Joseph, remember with his brothers as they grabbed their, their garments and they tore their clothes, as they're so just immensely hit by the emotion of that moment, they tore their clothes. We're told here, this man, as he is coming into the temple with his eyes down, it's like um, a guilty individual. When you look at somebody, you say, are you guilty? And they just, no, no, I'm not guilty. And they won't make eye contact. He can't even look up before the Lord. He's hitting his chest because he is so overstruck by the reality, I am a sinful man. Now, I think about Isaiah. When Isaiah stands before the Lord, when King Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord, and he saw the Lord in his glory and majesty. And his immediate reaction, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips, because there's the God, the holy, glorious God. See, beloved, this is what happens at conversion. God in his grace reveals himself, we see him rightly, and the immediate initial response to seeing God rightly is then to look and see ourselves rightly. And when we see his holiness, we see our unholiness. This man is a man who has truly tasted the grace of being crushed by truth. The grace of being crushed by truth. God wounds at conversion by grace. It hurts. Real sin, real pain, potentially real consequences of your sin, and God lets you see it and see it rightly before Him as best as you can in that moment. That's sweet pain. That is the grace of God allowing you to see true righteousness and see your great need for that righteousness. As well as you now see that you do not have any. This man in this moment has been and is, is experiencing the miracle of regeneration to see what he is seeing regarding himself. This does not happen apart from the Spirit's work in the life of a person. And then the storyteller makes a statement. Verse 14. I tell you, now anytime you see that in the Gospels, underline it and look very carefully what comes after, because there's usually some fireworks coming from Jesus when he begins by saying, I tell you, this man went down, remember when they go up to the temple, it's always up to the temple. When they leave the temple, it's always down from the temple. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Justified rather than the other. Now, there's an interesting Greek word backing this. You guys know I don't chase Greek words very regularly, but it was so, it just impressed so much on my mind and on my heart. Um, When he cries, be merciful to me, the sinner, that phrase, be merciful, hilaskame, means to propitiate, to atone for, to make reconciliation for. So what is this man communicating? When he says, be merciful to me, is it simply this glib, Lord, just let bygones be bygones? And let me get off scot-free. That's not what he's communicating. Not with this word. 
With this word, what he's saying is, Lord, would you propitiate me? Would you atone for me? Would you make reconciliation for me? I am in need of someone to do this very thing. I'm in need of somebody to rush my life and to pay that penalty. See, this man is a man who, again, within the parable, this is a man who understands the reality that blood has been shed. Blood must be shed for the remission of sins. So he knows, again, this fictitious character, this character knows that will take the spilt blood for my redemption. There will be a need for atonement for my receiving of his mercy. The Lord is too holy. He does not wink at sin and let people skate by. There must be payment for sin. God will require perfect payment before he will allow merciful forgiveness. That's a piece that gets missed often in our culture when, the, when you hear the gospel. Uh, at times when you hear the gospel, what is stated is God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, and so don't you want to come to him and accept him? What's missing in that? Sacrifice. Atonement. Payment for sin. See, God is not forgiving because he merely is loving and just lets sin hang. No, then we ask the question, so why is Jesus crucified? Jesus Christ is crucified as the atoning sacrifice for the penalty of Dan Mason's sin. No atonement, no salvation. So when this man says, Lord, have mercy on me, atone for me, that makes all the sense in the world in a gospel uh, sort of way as you walk through Scripture. And what we're told by Jesus here is this man went down to his home justified. Not because he did anything in the sense of of good works. Now, here's what's so fascinating to me, beloved. As those two men leave the temple and they walk down the street, how many people recognize the tax collector as righteous and the Pharisee as unrighteous? So apparently what man says really doesn't carry a whole lot of weight, correct? The declaration is made by Jesus Christ in this text. And your justification is based on the declaration of God. Not the declaration of of us here. Not the declaration of the world saying, well, then I'll let you skate by. If God does not declare it, it does not exist. Justification is not us doing our good works and piling it on to the point that God goes, okay, okay, you've done enough. Your good works have outweighed your bad works enough. I'll cut you loose. Justification is Almighty God saying, perfect righteousness has satisfied my absolute perfect standard, and I declare you absolutely, perfectly just before me. On the merit of Jesus and Jesus only. No additions. You don't add to the perfection of Jesus. I, I, years ago, I was, I was making the statement, um, what could you add to the perfection of Jesus? And I thought, what a stupid statement. How do you add to perfection? It's more perfecter, right? <laughs> sure thing, Dan. <clears throat> the reality is that perfection of Christ 
has completely, absolutely satisfied the Father. Jesus does not say, this man went to his home on the way to justification. He said, this man went to his home justified. Boom. Declaration made by God. And as for the Pharisee, he went home completely convinced of his justification. And had the declaration of other scribes and Pharisees, the declaration of his community, the declaration of all kinds of people around him, except for one, the sovereign of the universe said, no, you're not justified. You are without hope if you look to your works as your righteousness. Beloved, this is the absolute central core to what we believe as Christians. If you do not believe this, do not carry the title Christian. This is the centerpiece of who we are. This is the gospel. This doctrine of double imputation, big word, all that means is that the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed or accredited unto your account. Your sin is accredited unto Jesus' account. Jesus is crucified. Jesus pays the penalty, absorbing the wrath of his Father in your place and his perfect righteousness accredited unto you. You stand before God clothed in the the beautiful white robes of Jesus' righteousness and Christ is covered in the black, gross, sinful death of Dan Mason, and absorbs the wrath of the Father. So here's what's so cool. When you ask somebody, if you were to die tonight and stand before the Lord, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? Well, um, I went to church for 35 years. Don't care. I mean, okay, do, but... Tithed a lot. Don't care. I asked you why I should let you in. There's one key. Do you have the key? The answer to the question is, I stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. It's his perfection. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I need you, Father, to atone for me. I need reconciliation between you and I. And there is only one mediator between God and man. And so, no Christ, hell. Period. See, what is so fascinating, beloved, about this passage is that this is a division of two men. But really, it's a division of the entire human race. Now, I realize, 38-year-old young preacher standing here in a small little church on the coast making a statement of that magnitude. Are you kidding me? I didn't make the statement. I I did, but it's God's statement. The sovereign of the universe, in his inerrant, inspired word, has said the entire human race is divided by a man. Acts, you don't have to turn there, but Acts 17, 30, and 31. The entire universe, all human beings who have ever existed, exist, and ever will exist, are divided by this reality. In Christ or out of Christ. This man went home justified, and the other did not. Now, look down at your Bibles. And Jesus gives a very fascinating principle 
to sum up or wrap up this, this brief parable. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Arrogance and conversion don't mix. I'll go a step further. Arrogance and Christianity don't mix. The central piece to what is happening when we get saved is God in his grace humbling us. Now, what I believe true humility is, very simply put, is we are now in a right understanding of that which is. See, what I'm saying is, if somebody were to say, well, you need to pursue humility, the best way to pursue humility is to align yourself more and more with reality, biblically speaking. Um, because it's kind of tough when somebody goes, I need to work on humility, and then three days later, man, I'm doing pretty good with my humility. Oh, man. <clears throat> or like my, my pastor growing up said, if you gave a humility award, he'd wear it every day for everyone to see. <laughs> but that concept, beloved, is that it's Almighty God, the sovereign of the universe, who has burst forth and said, do you see who you are? Do you see who I am? Those who puff themselves up, the Lord will humble. And those who are humble before him, the Lord will build up. You go, how could the Lord build me up? Well, here's the interesting part. After the humility of conversion, God in his grace says, now you're my son. You're my daughter. I've adopted you. Not only that, I've put my spirit within you. Not only that, I'm going to give you my word with clarity. Not only that, the author of the word's coming with you. The spirit's going to be interpreting the scripture to you. I give you a glorious eternity. I give you eternal life, knowing me. All of that is ours. So the Lord, once we're broken, he pours in the riches of adoption, which is just absolutely phenomenal. But see, the difference, beloved, is that I I in no way can boast of myself in that. All the riches that are mine are the riches of God in Jesus Christ. So I'm convinced... The more we understand about the Lord, the more we see ourselves rightly, the more humility should fall in. Pride is insanity because it's out of sync with reality. So if you find yourself with spiritual pride, um, I was going to say you're insane, which to some extent, in some ways, we are. Because we're denying the reality of our humility in God's glory. And so this principle Jesus gives at the end is a beautiful wrapping up. Let me give you two points to consider as I, as I uh, land the plane and close this morning. Number one, and I've already hit this hard, so I'll say this quickly. There is only one kind of righteousness accepted by God. There's a lot of things about us as believers that bother people. I know that. Sometimes well-earned, we're being rude or whatever. But there's a lot of things that bother people in reference to who we are as, as Christians. But I would say the first and foremost is the exclusivity of Christianity, of the gospel message, that there is only one righteousness accepted by God. There's only one way to God. 
There is salvation in nobody else's name. It is only through Jesus Christ alone. Every single other religion is a man-made, man-centered, self-righteous, egotistical power trip that leads to hell. Clear? (laughs) And what always boggles my mind is how quickly folks are upset that I would say there's one way. Because honestly, you guys, the longer I'm a believer, the more I cannot believe there's a way. Not only that, but to contemplate the way that's been prepared is just, at times, debilitating to stop and ponder what God did in order to redeem. And number two, beware, and this is to my own heart, to your heart as a Christian, beware of self-righteousness creeping into your Christian life. No less, you and I, now this is, this is hard, okay, I get it. Some of you have been believers for a long, 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 long time. You are in need of Jesus today as much as you have ever been in need of Jesus. And what I mean by that is at times we can, we can start to get into a goofy idea of we've paid him back a bit. 30 years. Uh, I've been a believer for 30 or 31 years, and I've done a lot of good stuff, so my credit's looking great. The reality is, if Jesus were to remove his righteousness, I have no righteousness. After 30 years of being a Christian, I have no righteousness in the sense of merit, justification before God. And so let us beware that we don't start to Thank God we're not like others. Let us beware that we don't look to ourselves for our justification. And I am not speaking about holiness of life and progressive sanctification, that I believe there is an obedience we seek after as believers. But I'm talking this morning specifically with a a target on the truth of your justification. If you look to your works for pleasing God for eternity in heaven, you've missed the gospel. You don't have good news. You have horrible news. We are in no less need of grace than we ever have been this morning. We need our precious Jesus. I encourage you at some point to pick up a biography on Martin Luther. Um, Roland Baton's biography is, is a, it would be a great place to start. And the reason I say this is this, this, what I've been speaking about here is embodied in the very testimony. Now it's embodied in the testimony of every believer should be, but it's embodied particularly in the testimony of Luther because of the incredible lengths Luther went to become righteous by what he was doing. And Luther said when he finally grasp the doctrine of justification by faith alone and a foreign righteousness. He said it was as if the doors of heaven itself burst open and I stepped in because my soul rested. For the very first time in his life, his soul rested. 
He wasn't looking to himself anymore. He, he knew Jesus is the answer. He knew Christ did it. It's the exact same thing Paul argues in the book of Galatians. How could you guys? He says, I am amazed you are so quickly deserting him who called you unto himself that you'd go chase after your own works. Are you serious? And as you hear the testimonies of believers in this room and throughout the ages of history, Beloved, that note is rung over and over and over and over again where Jesus says, all you who are weak and heavy laden, come unto me. My burden is light. Put my yoke upon you. So let me throw this out and then pray. If deep in your heart this morning, you've you've listened to me, you've been very kind to me in how you've listened If this morning in your heart of hearts you say, that's me, Dan. I I am the one in this room that has been banking on my own works. And I have not completely rested on Christ for my salvation. Let me know. I don't care if it's a text or an email or what, it doesn't matter. But would you let me know? Because I, um, I take it as one of the primary tasks as a shepherd in this local body to make sure you have heard the true message of the gospel, to declare that. For the believers to rejoice in, absolutely. But I would be a fool to think that unsaved people don't come into this building on Sunday. And so if the Spirit of God is doing some sweet, tender stirring this morning, or he has whacked you upside the head with a pretty good two-by-four this morning, I want to pray with you, I want to pray for you, that you're not looking to you, but the sweet death of Christ, that beautiful sacrifice of Christ, has completely satisfied the Father.